Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I hear from all quarters that Lucrezia has great access and could not be better. And certainly I understand that, for her age, she has great intelligence. I wish to inform your lordship of this so that you understand that the majority of those who want favours of the Pope pass through this door, and it has already been signalled to me that it would be good to show some gratitude. Letter from Florimente Brognolo to Francesco Gonzaga, 10th of June, 1493. And welcome to the other half. Episode 4.14, Lucrezia Borgia, The Loose End. History has many great fan fatales. Seductive, enchanting, deadly. They are villainous characters who hide their wicked ways through beauty, charm and sexual advance. They scheme, they advance themselves and they murder, tempting heroes from the path of the righteous and leading good people to their doom. The Bible has Eve and Delilah. The ancient world has Cleopatra. English history has Anne Boleyn. And where would literature be without Morgan Le Fay? But the very byword for the femme fatale, the archetype for centuries, is Lucrezia Borgia. An incestuous whore to contemporary Italians. A classic villainess to Victor Hugo a murderess in countless books and films. More modern adaptations, most famously the Showtime drama The Borgias, temper this a little, portraying her as more a victim of her family, but still the classic parts of the story remain. A daughter too close to her father, a sister who sleeps with her brother, a wife who murders her lovers. A pawn, but a willing pawn nonetheless. But the desire to refute this is how any modern treatment starts of Lucrezia. Indeed, any femme fatale, really. It's become a bit of a trope, the reclaiming of the unjustly maligned woman. I'm always a little suspicious of these narratives. 
Her most recent biographer, Sarah Bradford, is the latest in a long line who begins their works by decrying her predecessors and saying that she has rediscovered the, quote, real Lucrezia. Indeed, I have a book from the 1950s by Simon Harcourt Smith that starts by saying more or less the same thing. Those who have been with me since the Queens of England days may remember my series on Anne Boleyn. In that, and I'm going to go right ahead and quote myself here, I said that every representation of her is given a new face, a new voice, new personality, and a new moral compass. Our view of her says far more about the time in which we live and the person writing the story or history than the woman herself. This is just as true of Lucrezia as it is with Anne, another so-called seductress from an unpopular upstart family that was vilified after her death. But while I think that Anne's fans tend to downplay her faults and imbue her with a 21st century mindset, Lucrezia has been cast as either a passive pawn, such as in the Showtime series, or as an actor with more power than she really had. We all want our women in history to be strong, powerful figures, but not all of them can be like Caterina Sforza. Some of them are, well, Lucrezia Borgia. The issue with any study of the Borgias is that history was written by their enemies, not by their friends. And by the time they had left the stage, they had a lot of enemies. While we do have one fairly neutral account by the papal master of ceremonies, Johann Bouchard, the rest are almost uniformly hostile. They are based on gossip and malice. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're entirely wrong. Rodrigo, Cesare and Lucrezia Borgia were larger-than-life characters and creatures of their time. Their personalities and vices were no different to their contemporaries. But they also represent an apogee, a concentrated concoction of their time. They practiced nepotism, but so did more or less every contemporary papal family. They used violence and skullduggery to further their interests. But as we saw with Caterina Sforza, this is hardly unique to them either. To adapt a common phrase, they were just like everyone else but only more so. Before we get going, though, with Lucrezia's story, I'd just like to thank all of my Patreon supporters who keep the show going. If you too would like to support the podcast, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. You can also follow it on Facebook and Twitter. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. The Borgias were not Italians. They were from Valencia, in the Kingdom of Aragon, in modern Spain. While the detractors love to label them as upstart commoners, they were actually of far more noble stock than, say, the Sforzas. They were pretty obscure minor nobility until the mid-15th century, when Alonso Borgia became first Bishop of Valencia and then Pope Calixtus III after a stellar church career. His reign only lasted three years, but he managed in that time to elevate a great deal many of his family and supporters to high positions. Most notably, his nephew, Rodrigo Borgia, 
who was made a cardinal and vice-chancellor of the church at the tender age of just 25. Rodrigo was a handsome man, at least by the standards of the time, and is said to have attracted women, quote, with greater force than a magnet attracts iron. High-ranking churchmen enjoying female company was hardly unique to Rodrigo Borgia, but his escapades were considered controversial, even at the time. This is most famously shown in a fantastic letter from the then Pope Pius II in 1460, where he ticks off Cardinal Borgia for one such indiscretion. Quote, We have learned that three days ago a large number of the women of Siena, adorned with all worldly vanity, gathered in the gardens of our beloved son Giovanni de Bicis, and that your eminence, in contempt of the dignity of your position, remain with them from one o'clock until six o'clock in the afternoon, and that you had in your company another cardinal, to whom at least his age, if not the honour of the Holy See, should have recalled his duty. We are told that the dances were immodest, and the seductions of love beyond bounds, and that you yourself behaved as if you were one of the most vulgar young men of the age. We are more angry than we can say, for it gives a pretext to those who accuse us of using our wealth and our high office for orgies. The vicar of Christ himself is an object of scorn because it is believed that he closes his eyes to these excesses. Blimey. Now, this letter is actually not quite the expose that it first seems. Pius wrote it in a fit of anger after hearing scandalous things about Borgia, but later correspondence shows that he admits to having overreacted to gossip. He wrote that he, quote, Received your eminence's letter, and taken note of the explanation you give. Your action, my dear child, cannot be free from fault, though it may perhaps be less grave than I was first told. We exhort you to refrain henceforth from such indiscretions, and to take the greatest care of your reputation. Now, this isn't an episode about Rodrigo Borgia, but I have spent some time on this, because it is an example of how the lurid stories of Borgia excesses spread. Nigh on every story, book, show about the Borgias quotes this letter, but it's remarkable how few place it in its proper context or examine the later correspondence. They see the word orgy, and that's all they focus on. And we will see more of that later. Rodrigo Borgia did have innumerable sexual partners over his life, and this is reflected in the number of women with whom he had children. He had at least eight, possibly more, but I'm only going to worry about three of them, all of whom were born to his principal mistress, Venotza Catanei. Catanei was born in Mantua, and was the daughter of a painter. Not much is known about Venotza. There are no surviving portraits that are definitely of her, and pretty much nothing is known of her life until she became Borgia's mistress at the age of 30. It's assumed that her family had fallen on hard times, so she couldn't afford a decent dowry. So becoming the mistress of a wealthy, well-connected man like Rodrigo Borgia was the surest way to gain a comfortable living. Indeed, she married twice while sleeping with Borgia, largely, one imagines, to give their liaisons a hint of respectability. In 1475, they had their first child, Cesare, who was then followed by Juan the following year, and then, in 1480, Lucrezia. Lucrezia's early life was dominated not by her mother, but by Rodrigo Cousins... 
but by Rodrigo Borgia's cousin, Adriana de Mila. She had married into the powerful Orsini family in Rome and took on the position of surrogate mother to all of Borgia's children. The principal reason for this was nationality. The Borgias were in a foreign land. While they all would have spoken fluent Italian, Borgia wanted his children to be raised as Spaniards, speaking his native Catalan language, dancing Catalan dancers, and reading Catalan authors. Borgias were outsiders, and Rodrigo was keen for his children to embrace their heritage rather than to hide it. It would be held against them in any case. Lucrezia was likely educated by the nuns at the San Sisto convent on the Appian Way, and was one of the better educated noblewomen of her day. Along with the religious instruction provided by the nuns, she was also well-read in the humanist texts, and could speak four languages fluently and read ancient Greek. Growing up in the Orsini Palace among the Roman elite also taught her the soft skills vital in a noblewoman of the day. Charm and grace were her watchwords from day one, and she was also renowned for her eloquence in public speaking. These were skills she had inherited and learned from her father, and it's not surprising that he doted on the only daughter that he had with his favourite mistress. In Lucrezia's late preteen years, her father moved his latest squeeze into the Orsini Palace to live with Lucrezia. She was Giulia Farnese, a famed beauty only six years older than Lucrezia. Now, whether Borgia and Farnese actually had an affair is disputed. It was certainly highly rumoured at the time, though. The ambassador from Ferrara called her, quote, Giulia Farnese, about whom so much is whispered. Whether or not they did have an affair, Farnese's brazen use of her sexuality and femininity likely influenced the impressionable young Lucrezia. Very little beyond this is known of her childhood, so we'll skip ahead to 1491, when, at the age of 11, she was betrothed to, you guessed it, a Catalan. He was a lord in the Kingdom of Valencia, but I won't trouble you with his name, as Borgia didn't bother to trouble with actually going through with the arrangement. This is because, two months later, he found someone better. A Neapolitan lord called, well, again, there's no point me telling you, because the Borgias were going up in the world. In August 1492, Pope Innocent VIII died. The leading candidates for the papacy were Giuliano della Rovere, considered Naples' man, and Ascanio Sforza, Milan's man and uncle of our old friend Caterina. Now, this papal race has gone down in infamy as one of the most corrupt in history, but in reality it was no more so than any other in this period. Every pope elected in the Renaissance achieved it by making promises of office and title to his supporters, and likely got there due to familial connections from pontiffs gone by. Opponents of the Borgias would later speak of vast mule trains laden with silver departing the Borgia residence to the palaces of cardinals. But there's no evidence that this election differed much from those gone before and hence. And equally, Rodrigo Borgia had a lot to recommend him besides his wealth. As I related in the previous series on Caterina Sforza, this was a time of great uncertainty in Italy. The great peacemaker, Lorenzo de' Medici, had just died, and the 50-year peace that he had instigated and guaranteed was shaky, with Naples and Milan likely to end up on opposite sides of an imminent war, 
and the other two candidates considered to be partisans of either side, there was considerable appetite for a third way, a compromise that would not antagonise either side. Rodrigo was in his early 60s, so was unlikely to reign as Pope for too long, and had vast experience in wheeling and dealing in the snake pit of Roman politics, having been a cardinal for four decades. Bribery and simony, there were abundant, but it is quite possible to argue that he was the best and most qualified man for the job. This is not to say that Rodrigo did not take sides. Indeed, he secured his office by winning the support of one of his rivals, Ascanio Sforza, who, seeing which ways the wind were blowing, threw his support, and that of his partisans, behind Borgia in return for the position of vice-chancellor and its associated residence. Thanks to this, Rodrigo Borgia was elected as the new pope, taking it as his pontifical name, Alexander VI, which is what I will be calling him from now on. And how best to secure this new alliance with the Sforzas? Why, by a marriage, of course. As Ascanio Sforza wrote to his brother, quote, The Pope, being a carnal man and very loving of his flesh and blood, this marriage will so establish the love of his beatitude towards our house that no one will have the opportunity to divert him from us and draw him towards themselves. As we'll see, though, this was wishful thinking from the Sforzas. So this is how Lucrezia saw her second engagement ripped up and become betrothed to a third man, Giovanni Sforza, the Count of Pissarro. Though he had an impressive name, Giovanni was actually part of the cadet Sforza clan. His grandfather had been the brother of the dynasty's founder, Francesco Sforza, the father of Scanio, and the grandfather of Caterina. Fourteen years Lucrezia's senior, Giovanni had no great wealth despite his title, so fought as a mercenary soldier, or condottiero, to make ends meet. As a minor sforza, he was dependent on his more powerful relatives, and so had no more choice in the marriage than his child bride. They were both pawns in a much larger game, pieces that, as we shall see, could be moved and sacrificed at will. The two met for the first time when he arrived in Rome for their wedding. When he saw Lucrezia he would have seen, well, like most things Borgia, her appearance is a matter of debate. Some describe her as one of the beauties of the age, with long, flowing blonde hair that reached below her waist, a long, elegant head and neck with strikingly white teeth. However, some likenesses of Lucrezia have her being as a pretty girl, but nothing tremendously special to look at. It was instead her vivacious personality, with a smile that could light up a room that made her striking. Lucrezia and Giovanni were married by her father in a magnificent wedding, with both bride and groom dressed in elaborate and expensive garments designed to show off the wealth and power of the Borgias and Sforzas. The reception was a society event like no other, and even though this was the marriage of an illegitimate bride and minor noble scion, it was celebrated as if it were the wedding of a king and queen. However, there was one unusual feature to the wedding that will become important. At the time, the climax of the day's festivities was the bedding ceremony, where the bride would be led up to the bedroom, prepared by her ladies, and then be joined by the groom, and they would then consummate the marriage. On some occasions, there will be witnesses in the room to see this happening. Other times, they will be crammed up against the door. This was no mere voyeurism. Sexual intercourse was the final act of a wedding ceremony. 
Without consummation, a marriage cannot be considered complete and could be dissolved at any time. The decision to delay the bedding was not actually made by the bride and groom. It was by the Pope. His stated reason was that his daughter, aged only 13, was too young and that they should wait until she turned 14. While this is a laudable reason, it wasn't the real one, or at least not the only one. See, just as you should beware Greek-sparing gifts and never tickle a sleeping dragon, you should never trust a deal signed with a Borgia, no matter what they put up as collateral. By marrying Lucrezia to Sforza, Alexander was nailing his colours to the mast of the HMS Milan, which was allied with France, whose king, Charles VIII, had its designs on the crown of Naples. But no sooner had vows been exchanged than the Spanish and Neapolitans paid the Pope a visit. They had two marriage proposals. A match between Alexander's son, Juan, and the cousin of the Spanish king, Maria Enriquez, and another son, Geoffrey Borgia, would marry Sancha, the daughter of the King of Naples. There were other bits to this deal related to Spanish and Portuguese squabbling over territories in the New World, but the key for us is that it led to a rapprochement between Pope Alexander and Spain, Naples and the Della Rovere's. He also ended up a great deal richer and excellent marriages for his sons, but that was by the by. This was a colossal volte face, and rather took the sheen of Lucrezia's wedding. Suddenly the alliance, which her marriage had sealed, seemed extremely shaky. Meanwhile, though, Lucrezia was rapidly emerging into society as a power broker. Her position as her father's favourite did not go unnoticed, and there are many letters from the time that say that the best way to win the ear of the Pope was through Lucrezia. Gifts began raining down on her and Giovanni Sforza revelled in his newfound position as husband of the papal darling. But the diplomatic situation, already weakened by the Borgia marriages to Spanish and Neapolitan princesses, was about to turn decisively against Sforza. In March 1494, the King of Naples died, setting off the chain of events that would lead to the outbreak of the First Italian War. In this conflict, which pitted France and its ally Milan against Naples, the Pope would eventually come down on the side of Naples, forming the Holy League with the other great powers of Italy against this French threat. The Pope's armies would be led by a dashing lord from Mantua called Francesco Gonzaga, remember that name, and he would make his name in this war. While French and Italian armies clashed all over the peninsula, Lucrezia was safely ensconced with her husband, living apparently contentedly as man and wife. But it appears there was trouble in paradise, whispers emerging that all was not well. Giovanni was unhappy with the Borgias. Understandably, he did not trust Pope Alexander, nor his son Cesare, and was unhappy with Lucrezia when she failed to obtain a cardinal's hat for one of his friends. The Mantuan envoy was one of the principal muckrakers here, suggesting that perhaps Sforza, quote, has something at home, something which others would not suspect. You can sense here the gathering clouds of scandal 
but for now, it was far from the storm that would later break over Lucrezia. By the following year, Giovanni was fighting in the army of Venice, and Lucrezia was back in Rome making a new friend. Her sister-in-law, Sancha, the Neapolitan princess who had married her brother Geoffrey, was in town and causing quite the stir. She was three years older than her husband, though quite a bit more mature, and the same age as Lucrezia. The two got on famously, enjoying playing practical jokes and making fun of the stuffy old men that surrounded them. On one famous occasion, they climbed up into the church choir during a sermon, a section reserved exclusively for clergy. They were two pretty, vivacious and fun-loving women, with husbands far beneath them in status and talent, and they were determined to enjoy themselves. It's also not surprising to hear that there were many stories emanating from the Vatican of Sancha and her ladies receiving numerous men in their quarters, including, most scandalously, Cesare Borgia and his father, Pope Alexander. Someone who was not enjoying themselves, though, was Giovanni Sforza. His family was now on the side of the Holy League in the First Italian War, but far from the centre of papal favour, which now centred around the Spanish. People surplus to Borgia requirements had a habit of waking up dead, so this was a dangerous time for Giovanni. In March 1497, seemingly without any warning, he fled Rome, possibly after hearing rumours that Lucrezia's brother Cesare was planning on having him murdered. Though it's not known for sure, it may have been Lucrezia herself that had tipped him off. He may not have been the perfect husband, but she had no desire to see him murdered. However, this flight only infuriated Pope Alexander all the more, and he demanded that the marriage to Lucrezia be annulled. Borgia had no more use for young Sforza, and he would acquiesce if he knew what was good for him. To his credit, Giovanni did not back down from this fight. The issue was that the only realistic way the marriage could be annulled was on the grounds of non-consummation due to impotence. This was blatantly false as his first wife had died in childbirth, and he had at least one illegitimate daughter. He could also prove that he had slept with Lucrezia, as he had received dowry payments from the Borgias that were contingent on consummation. If this were a fair trial, it would be an open and shut case. But life with the Borgias isn't fair. Meanwhile, Lucrezia had herself taken off, ensconcing herself in the San Sisto convent where she had spent so much time growing up. Again, why she did this is the subject of much speculation. Some have said it was to get away from her husband, but others have said she quarrelled with her father. Perhaps she was unhappy in being forced to divorce and humiliate her husband, a man she did not love, but to whom she did not harbour ill will. Or maybe there was another, more sensational reason. She had recently begun an affair with a Spanish chamberlain in the Pope's service, Pedro Calderon, more commonly called Perotto. This sudden seclusion behind the walls of a convent suggested that perhaps this affair had resulted in a pregnancy. These rumours were only further amplified a few months later, when Perotto and one of Lucrezia's ladies were discovered dead in the Tiber. I think this is known in mafioso circles as tying up loose ends. While the murderer was never caught it was almost certainly carried out on the orders of Cesare Borgia. Around the same time, a child was born in the Borgia household, 
a boy named Giovanni. The boy's mother was never revealed, but the father was first named as Cesare before Alexander later admitted paternity in a papal bull that was only uncovered a century later. Giovanni would later come to live with Lucrezia in Ferrara after the Pope's death, and so it is more than likely that she was, in fact, his mother. As for who the father was, well, Perotto is the most likely answer, but many at the time, and since, have pointed the finger within her own family. Here, the charge of incest begins to be associated with Lucrezia. But again, more on that later. Lucrezia's reaction to Perotta's murder is unknown, but surely it must have been quite a shock. Not only her lover, but one of her ladies, with whom she was likely to have been close, had been murdered by her brother. It was yet another illustration of the complete control that her family had in her life. She had managed to save her husband from death, but her lover and friend had not been so lucky. While all this was going on, this was a busy year, tragedy struck the Borgias. On the 14th of June, 1497, Juan Borgia rode out with his brother Cesare after having had dinner with their mother, Venozza. He took his leave, saying he had business to attend to, probably a liaison with his mistress. He never returned. The city was filled with soldiers looking for the Pope's son, and eventually were tipped off that a body had been seen dumped in the Tiber. A day later, the bloodied remains of Juan Borgia were fished from the river. He had been stabbed nine times. The death shook the family to the core, and Juan was buried with all honour in a lavish funeral ceremony. The culprits were never caught. Many suspects had been fingered, including Cesare, naturally. But the Borgias were in no doubt who was to blame. The Orsinis. The Borgia vendetta against the Orsini for their supposed part in Juan's death would dominate Roman power politics for years to come. Of more immediate concern was that the papal family now needed a new marriage to the House of Aragon that ruled both Spain and Naples. Well, actually, as before, they had two. Cesare had his eyes on Naples, and planned to get there by marrying the king's legitimate daughter, Carlotta. But to get that marriage, first the Borgias needed an inn. The man they had in mind was Alfonso of Aragon, the illegitimate son of the King of Naples. And, of course, the prospective bride would be Lucrezia. But Lucrezia was still legally married, and Giovanni was refusing to budge on the question of the dowry or accusations of impotence. His obstinacy on these points resulted in a compromise, where the marriage was annulled on the totally implausible grounds of non-consummation, which everyone knew to be false, but went along with anyway. This deal got both Alexander and Giovanni what they wanted, but left Lucrezia's reputation in tatters. The notion that she was still a virgin after four years of marriage, not to mention her well-known affair with Perotto, was greeted with utter scorn. Her family was well and truly using Lucrezia, and they did not take much trouble to prevent her from being collateral damage in their various schemes. Lucrezia and Alfonso were married in the summer of 1498, in a hasty, behind-closed-doors ceremony. This did not mean it wasn't opulent, though. On the contrary, it was a tremendous display of wealth and power, as Naples and Borgia sought to demonstrate the depths of their respective pockets. 
After a day of feasting, the two were officially wed by the Pope in the papal throne room and were presented with expensive gifts. They then retired to the Borgia apartments, where Cesare had organised some rather bizarre entertainments, including a fountain decorated with snakes. At least, try and be subtle, Cesare. Most bizarrely, though, there was a sort of live-action role-play, where Borgia family members dressed up as animals in a wood, with Cesare being a unicorn and Joffre as a sea goose. This was followed the following day by more partying and dancing, and finally, a bullfight, attended by over 10,000 spectators. Throughout all of this, Cesare was shown to be dancing a great deal, both with Sancha, with whom it was widely known he was having an affair, and Lucrezia, with whom, well, much the same was whispered. Lucrezia had risen in station with this marriage, becoming Duchess of Biseli and Princess of Salerno. However, once again... No sooner had Pope Alexander married his daughter off to secure an alliance, than he had changed his tune. The uneasy peace that had ended the First Italian War ended with the death of King Charles of France and the accession of King Louis. The new monarch was keen to press his ancestral claim to Naples again. For complex reasons I won't trouble you with, Alexander saw greater advantage in supporting France this time, rather than Naples. The alliance was secured with the marriage of Cesare to Charlotte of Albrey, and him being given the title of Duke of Valentinois, raised the Order of St. Michel, and various other lucrative offices. Good for Cesare, bad for Lucrezia and her new husband. At 16 and 17 respectively, they were far closer in age and temperament than she was with Giovanni. Alfonso was, by all accounts, a good young man, Kind, gentle, and extremely handsome. They may have been a contracted marriage, but they were certainly more than happy to go along with the match. And it was not long before she became pregnant with her first official baby, a son who they would name Rodrigo after her father. But the winds of change were blowing against Alfonso. Cesare went to France and returned at the head of an army. Quote, The ruin of Italy is confirmed wrote one observer, and of course we all know what fate befell Caterina Sforza in Forlì when that army reached her gates. The Borgias planned to use this French army to conquer a new territory in the Romagna to be ruled by Cesare, before allowing France to crush Naples. Those opposed to this, including Cardinal Ascanio Sforza, fled Rome, fearful of joining the ranks of lifeless bodies floating in the Tiber leaving poor young Alfonso with very few advisers with his interests at heart. Rightfully fearful for his life, Alfonso escaped the city, dodging papal troops sent to fetch him back. Lucrezia was pregnant at the time, and this must have been a torturous time for her, torn between her loyalties to her family and her husband. She was in an impossible position, trapped by forces beyond her control. Observers report her putting on a brave face in public, but weeping in private, anguishing at why her beloved husband had not written to tell her he was okay. The reason for this is simple. He had, but the letters had been intercepted. There were no bounds to Borgia Machiavellian dealings, even with Lucrezia. Things weren't all bad for her, though. Perhaps to take her mind off her troubles, 
Alexander granted his daughter the unusual honour of a title in her own right, that of Governor of Spoleto, a city about 80 miles north of Rome. In a letter to the priors of the city, Alexander wrote, quote, We have entrusted to our beloved daughter in Christ, the noble lady Lucrezia Borgia, Duchess of Bisseli, the office of keeper of the castle, as well as the government of our cities of Spoleto and Foligno, and of the county and district around them. Having perfect confidence in the intelligence, fidelity and probity of the Duchess, we trust that you will receive her, as is your duty, with all due honour as your regent. This was a sign that despite his treatment of her, she was very much in papal favour, but was also a sign of his trust in her judgement and abilities as an administrator. She was only a young woman, only 19. This was highly unusual and attracted some criticism, but it would prove an astute move. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, the King of Naples was getting cold feet. He didn't want to antagonise the Pope, and so persuaded his son to return to Lucrezia. And all appeared to be forgiven. As I said before, their child was named after the Holy Father, and he made a great show of his delight in the birth of his grandson. He even rewarded Alfonso with a command in the papal army. The two returned to Rome, and lived in great luxury, enjoying the proceeds of Borgia favour. They were there when Cesare Borgia returned to the city in triumph with Caterina Sforza in chains, and to the turn-of-the-century celebrations in 1500. But, for the most part, they temporarily disappeared from the record. The super trooper focused on Cesare and his exploits. This was his moment of greatest success, and he milked the spotlight. But this success was eroding Alfonso's position. Having held up its end of the bargain in destroying the Sforzas for the Pope, France now needed him to come through and help King Louis secure the crown of Naples. The crown which, lest you forget, was currently held by Alfonso's father. On the 15th of July, 1500, Alfonso was travelling home when, according to the Florentine ambassador, quote, four very well-armed men attacked him and dealt him three blows. One on the head, very deep, and one across the shoulder, either one of which could be mortal, and another small one on the arm, and by what is known of the wounds are of a gravity that he will require God's help. Who may have wounded him, no one says, and it is not obvious that diligent inquiries are being made, as they should be, nor is it much spoken of. Indeed, around Rome, it is rumoured that these things are amongst their very selves, because in that palace there are so many hatreds, both old and new, and so much envy and jealousy that it is necessary often to hide similar scandals. It is said that the wounded duke was taken back into the palace, and the Pope got up and went to see him, and Madonna Lucrezia was in a dead faint. The news of this assassination attempt rushed through Rome like a flood. Accusations swirled, but most pointed the finger squarely at Cesare Borgia. He was already suspected of killing Lucrezia's lover and threatening to kill her first husband. It wasn't exactly a logical leap to imagine that he'd try and kill Alfonso. It's fair to say, though, that there are alternative suspects. The Orsinis are equally likely to have been culpable, as Alfonso supported their enemies, the Colonna. However, with no real investigation being instigated, there is no real way to know for sure. 
and equally it's possible that the two sides colluded in the attempt at killing. Lucrezia took the news hard, and, as stated by the Florentine ambassador, became literally sick with worry. However, she did recover, and joined her sister-in-law, Sancha, in taking care of her wounded husband. He ran a very high fever and constantly seemed at death's door. The two women set up makeshift beds in his room to ensure he was always taken care of, but also as a means of protection. There were papal soldiers stationed outside the door, but they were in Borgia pay. Who knew where their loyalties really lay? She made sure he was treated by a Neapolitan doctor and prepared his food herself to ensure it wasn't poisoned. After a couple of weeks, Alfonso appeared to be on the mend, and Lucrezia made plans to have him moved to the Kingdom of Naples for his convalescence. This spurred Cesare into action, and if he hadn't been behind the first attempt on Alfonso's life, there is no doubt about his culpability for the second. On the 18th of August, Lucrezia, Sancha and Alfonso were conversing happily in his room when three men burst in. The leader was Cesare's chief henchman and personal executioner, a man called Michelotto. He ordered that their attendants be bound and thrown in jail, before turning his attention on Cesare's sister, former lover and brother-in-law. What happened next was related by Alfonso's former tutor, Raphael Brandolinus Lippus. He says that Lucrezia and Sancha, quote, stupefied by the suddenness and violence of the act, screamed at Michelotto, demanding how he dared commit such an offence before their very eyes and in the presence of Alfonso. He excused himself as persuasively as he could, declaring that he was obeying the will of others, but that they, if they wished, might go to the Pope, and it would be easy to obtain the release of the men. Carried away with anger and pity, the two women went to the Pope. Meanwhile, Michelotto suffocated Alfonso, who was indignantly reproving him for his offence. The women returning from the Pope found armed men at the door of the chamber, who prevented them from entering, and announced that Alfonso was dead. Terrified by this most cruel deed, oppressed by fear, and beside themselves with grief, they filled the palace with their shrieking, lamenting, and wailing, and their tears were without end. Cesare and Alexander spread the story that Alfonso had died after he had tried to kill Cesare with a crossbow, but there seems little doubt that the broad strokes of the account that I read out were accurate. Lucrezia was overcome with grief and guilt. She may not have been the one with her hand across Alfonso's neck, but it had been her marriage to him that had led to his death. The two years they had spent together had been some of the happiest of her life. She had been with a man she loved, and he had died because of her family's actions. She blamed herself, but also her father, who couldn't understand why his daughter would not stop crying. He had never let attachments get in the way of a good scheme. He'd raised his children to be ruthless and pragmatic. This grief-stricken widow was not the daughter he knew. He sent her away to wallow in her misery at Nepi. A time to recover and to reflect. She had spent the first two decades of her life as a pawn in her family's games. She was determined that those days were over. She would be a victim no more. <laughs> 